friends, and welcome to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. We are joined today uh, by a special guest, Dr. Blake Hearson, and uh, I'm going to kick it over to my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning, who's going to tell us a little bit about Dr. Hearson and his work. So, Dr. Brian, take it away. Yeah, we're really excited, listeners, to uh, be able to introduce you to one of uh, Dr. Tim and I's professors during our doctoral studies, Dr. Blake Hearson. So Dr. Hearson is professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. He's the current book review editor and former managing editor of their journal, the Midwestern Journal of Theology, um, and he served as my dissertation chair. Dr. Hearson is an amazing scholar and an even better person, and so we're really excited to have him here today. Dr. Hearson, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So it's always good to hear that you uh, managed to get through the program and, and survive uh, <laughs> and still have a positive outlook on me, so that's good. <laughs> I still remember my very first introduction to you, Dr. Hearson. I don't know if you remember it, but uh, you came in during the first day of our seminar and you were just walking through kind of, here's what the class is going to be. Here's what the PhD program is. And he said, and you told us, you know, really at the end of this program, it, you're kind of like a Sith apprentice. You're going to have to learn to strike me down with all of your hate or you will not graduate. Um, and that always stuck with me. I'm like, all right, a Star Wars reference. He loves the Old Testament. He loves the minor prophets. I really want to study with him. And so uh, it was my pleasure to work with you. And we're really excited to have you here today um, yes, to talk about your book, Go Now to Shiloh. Before we get into that book, though, I want to ask a question that I kind of ask all of our people that come on for an interview. Why the Old Testament? What, what initially kind of prompted your interest in this area? And maybe explain for our viewers a little bit of your journey. Sure. Um, I could always answer with why not the Old Testament, but uh, the <laughs> journey for answer. me actually was, it was interesting because, you know, my, my larger journey is um, in a way a little complex. Um, I had my plans, but God had other plans. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up in a home with a, a, a PhD father who taught biology and I loved biology. I loved animals. I loved science. Um, and thought that's what I was going to do. But my dad kept saying, no, I don't think that's for you. I really don't think that's where you're going to go. Um, I don't think you'll be happy in it because you'll find that higher education biology is all about medicine and pathology and the kind of things that you're interested in. It just doesn't do. That's not the focus anymore. I mean, you can do it, but it's not the focus. And uh, sure enough, I found out that there were two big things that um, I was not expecting to be quite as prevalent as they were in biology um, and uh, that I absolutely turned out to hate, and that was <laughs> organic chemistry and math, all kinds of math. So, And those are so necessary for biology these days that um, the kind of stuff that I enjoyed doing, you know, was just it just wasn't going to happen i was going to be miserable all throughout and so that presented a bit of a crisis in terms of my identity really you know and i had to think god what is it you want me to do because at that point i certainly didn't you know I, it you would have floated the idea of me being a teacher um 
to anybody or to that knew me or to myself and I would have just laughed at you. I was like, yeah, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is get out in front of people and talk. No, uh-uh. um, that's just not me. And so the process, you know, that didn't really come into it initially. And the process then was sort of, I was really enjoying my theology classes. I really enjoyed my Bible classes. I went to Christian school for high school and loved the Bible at that point in time. And so I started to think about that and I thought, well, you know, I'll just, I really enjoy this. I love it. It's, it's fantastic. Um, I'll survive the languages and I'll get to study the Bible. And I have no idea what I'll do with that because I don't feel called to ministry. I don't feel called to teach. And beyond those two things, you're kind of, there aren't a whole lot of people out there doing Bible, like house to house Bible repair. You know, it just doesn't, you know, <laughs> there aren't a lot of jobs that don't involve teaching or preaching or ministry or something like that. And I've always sure. had a heart for people. I cared for people, but you know, I just didn't equate that with necessarily ministry at the initial point. And so as I went through and, and enjoyed Bible and I initially really enjoyed systematic theology. And then the more I studied the Bible, the more I realized kind of how far in some ways systematic theology was from the Bible. And so as I worked on things and worked through my um, bachelor's and master's in biblical studies, biblical theology, um, I fell more in love with the Bible. And then I, I really found that I enjoyed Greek. Like Greek is awesome. Hebrew's hard, but Greek is awesome. You know, and so I thought, you <laughs> yeah. know, here's, here comes Greek. And so... Well, I got the advice to go on to seminary that even if I wasn't officially thinking of going into ministry, seminary was a good time to kind of settle that for sure. And people having seminary degrees could be very helpful to the church, even if they weren't pastoring. And so that was the next stage. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to focus on Greek New Testament and I'm going to go to seminary. And well, I started to kind of really enjoy the Old Testament. And God kind of put that on the heart, on my heart and starting to realize how much of the New Testament was misunderstood because the Old mm -hmm. Testament wasn't applied. There wasn't yeah. an understanding of the Old Testament backgrounds. Um, you know, and a, a big picture of that we could circle back to if you want would be, you know, one of the examples I like to use is the Isaiah 7 passage and, and how a lot of Christians church center in on that virgin birth and miss mm -hmm. the bigger picture that's kind of behind that, um, that that's kind of gravy to the potatoes in terms of what Matthew's doing with that passage. Yeah. Um, and we often miss the potatoes, um, you know, and the gravy's good, but it's best on top of mashed potatoes, not by itself. Um, otherwise, you know, you may like gravy in a, in a glass to drink, but that's kind of gross. And that's, <laughs> you know, you got to realize that's not... <laughs> That's not the ideal, so that's not what gravy was intended yeah. for. So, so anyway, now that that analogy has run amok, um, oh, so God's been that working that's on me and, and said, yeah, uh, you know, Old Testament. And uh, mm -hmm. I was starting to think, okay, maybe teaching, maybe teaching. I got a little taste of it, and it wasn't, it was scary, but not as scary as I thought it was going to be. And uh, so... Thought, all right, well, the next stage is a PhD. Uh, I'm still not entirely clear on what God's going to do with that, but Old Testament it is. I'm going to do Old Testament theology, 
and I applied to several schools, um, Harvard, Marquette, um, Hebrew Union, Princeton, um, Duke, Emory, I think. And I got into almost all of them. Notre Dame, I played Notre Dame too. They rejected me, but I got into most almost all of them. But the only one that I got into with a full-ride scholarship, and I had determined I'm not going to go into debt for this degree, was Hebrew Union. Hmm. And boy, I'm like, look at him, God, what is up with this? Because that place targets all my weaknesses. Hmm. This is totally targeting my weaknesses instead of my strengths and my loves. And is this really what you want? And I just had a sense of peace about it. And it's something that people don't often understand, but you can have be terrified and have a sense of peace at the same time. Um, book that I think illustrates that, that, you know, Brian, you and I have been over several times is uh, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, mm -hmm. um, dealing with joy and terror at the same time, and that that's possible in the relationship with God. And that's kind of what going into Hebrew Union was for me. And, uh, and of course, it's targeting the Hebrew, and I absolutely love the Hebrew now. And one of the ironic things about it, I suppose, in, in God's economy and the way he does these things is um, because I didn't necessarily find Hebrew to be the most natural thing that I gravitated to, hmm. it's actually made me, I think, a better, I hope, a better teacher in Hebrew because I have hmm. a huge amount of compassion for, you know, nine out of ten students that walk into the Hebrew class going, I'm never going to survive this. This is scary. This is I just something I have to survive and, and do and start to be a little less scared of it and ultimately see, oh, wow, this gives me a whole new different insight into the way they think, the worldview, the concepts, all this sort of stuff that comes into play. And they walk out then with a greater appreciation for the Old Testament, having done that language as well as a greater understanding of the New Testament, I think, in the end, as far as having some of those concepts in the way that Hebrew is such a different thought process than Greek um, or the Western world. And so... Absolutely. Yeah, my passion then just ended up kind of being beat into me in some ways. Um, and it is a genuine passion now, but God had to kind of beat it into me because my starting point was biology working with animals. Um, and, uh, yet here I am. Uh, so, and you guys can, can hopefully testify that, that, uh, um, God knew what he knew, knew what he was doing with that. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. But, so, so that was kind of my journey, um, to get to the old Testament and, uh, I have a great deal of passion for it now. I still do. Um, mm -hmm. obviously, um, and uh, just love, absolutely love opening it up and getting people excited about it and realizing, yeah, you don't start, Scripture doesn't start with Matthew. Uh, not all the answers are, because of the Bible, not all the answers are in the back. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's not just a <clears throat> reference work to yeah. the New Testament, but. It is the insp inspired word of God prior to the advent of Jesus, and it was that before Jesus came. And 
Jesus himself used it as his Bible. So, yeah. And I think that's, that's a really important point. And Tim, I bet you can agree with this, that that mm -hmm. came through very evidently in all of your teachings and your classes that, um, this passion for the old Testament drives us through scripture, right? It doesn't become something that's siloed away or, you know, segregated to one corner of our mind, but it's, it's the Bible. It's appreciating God's mm -hmm. word. Um, and so, yeah, thank you for sharing that story. I think many of us that have gone through the languages saw Greek and we're like, oh, Greek is easy. Hebrew yeah. looks hard, but you put in the time and uh, it, it really opens up the word. Mm -hmm. um, the book that, and I believe, so it's been out for a few years now, Dr. Hearson, and uh, Go Now to Shiloh, I think came out during my dissertation phase because I remember looking through it and going, all right, I'm going to earn some brownie points by getting a quote somewhere in my dissertation from it. And I think I edited it out by accident. So I didn't get those brownie points. I did get the degree though. So maybe that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I remember reading through it and going, all right, I really want to dive into this topic more. It's not related to my dissertation study. So I need to maybe set it aside, but now uh, I'm happy to talk with you because I, I really want to dig into this a little bit. So go down to Shiloh. It's a quote from the Old Testament, and you're dealing with a concept that might be foreign to just the average churchgoer, um, right. at least by terminology, and that's sacred space. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe help us like orientate ourselves here? What is sacred space in the Bible? Okay, yeah. And sacred space, like you say, it's, it's a foreign concept, I think, in some ways. Part of the reason I wrote the book. Um, it's, you get right down to it. Um, I use the analogy of a phone booth. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a way and a acceptable point of contact between heaven and earth, between God and people. And the reason that it's foreign to us is that we think, oh gosh, yeah, you can do that anywhere, any place, anytime. And that's true, but that's true because of the work of Jesus. And it mm. wasn't always that easy. They had that in the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden is a sacred space. And then that, then they had a breakdown in the line. And um, because of sin, they were kind of cut off from that ready access. And as before cell phones, you couldn't necessarily call somebody and get in touch with somebody else at any time, any point. You had to have a phone booth. You had to have a phone in the house. You had to have somewhere where you could pick that up and you had to have the right number to dial and to get connected to the other person and you had to hope the other person would receive the call and so all these things illustrate kind of the difficulty that sin introduced into communicating with god and fundamentally mm -hmm. that's kind of the focus of the book is the difficulty of communicating with god and then how ultimately jesus undoes that difficulty um and helps us understand that then have that much more appreciation for what Jesus ultimately did that we do tend to take for granted simply because we don't know how difficult it was um, and how amazing it was that God deemed to communicate with us at all in some ways, uh, given mm -hmm. our sinful nature. Yeah, I think we don't often reflect on that kind of advantage that Christ offers us through the Holy Spirit. So maybe to help us understand this, if I was just, say, a person in ancient Israel, you're saying I can't just go out and just pray and know that God is going to hear me. 
right? Maybe explain a little bit what's some of the difficulties that an ancient follower of God faces in this communication in sacred space. Well, you know, and that's and that's the tricky part. All analogies break down at a certain point, mm-hmm. but it's um, someone you know we would know from the nature of God that if someone is seeking Him, genuinely seeking Him, He's going to make Himself accessible. Um, usually, usually mm-hmm. we have an illustration say in the Scripture with Saul, where he's seeking God and. and after he's sinned quite a bit and, and God says, yeah, no, um, to quote the old soup Nazi thing from, uh, um, Seinfeld is that, you know, Seinfeld. No, yeah. No communication for you. Kind of thing. So it's, it's one of those things where it's, you know, God has to, you know, be willing, but he is willing for most people that genuinely seek him. Now, the way that worked often though, would be God would, then present himself as accessible at a place. And because you've got sin and the need to somehow um, account for that sin and deal with that sin when communicating with God, you usually had to have sacrifice involved um, to communicate with God. And so, and sacrifice at just any old place isn't typically acceptable. Um, And so they had to know, God had to reveal himself as accessible at a place. For them to know, okay, yeah, I can get in touch with God here. And then there was usually some sort of sacrifice that was involved at that place um, so that a sinner could come into the presence of God and interact with him. Um, And so, yeah, it's the way they did that. And we have to get into some, a little bit of ancient Near Eastern history here. And I don't want to go too geeky on you, but, um, the way they would do it would be they would assume that the gods were somehow connected with creation, the gods that mm-hmm. they worshipped. And so you see a tree on a high hill, you see lightning hit that tree. Okay, well, that's Baal, the god of thunder. Um, you know, um, modern audiences would say, oh, no, that's Thor. But no, it's, it's Canaan, it's Baal. So, all right. Yeah. Um, and uh, Baal was a lot less... Uh, goofy and and scary than Thor was. So um, Mm. at least in the modern movies, but at any rate, so high places, trees, places where that seemed like there's a lot of fertility. These are the things they would associate. God tells his people in Deuteronomy. Yeah. You don't get to do that with me. I have to reveal myself. I'm not connected to creation in the sense of tied to anything in particular. So you have to wait for me to reveal myself. So it's a waiting game for the Israelite worshiper. Um, and then when God reveals himself, they have to be very um, careful in terms of their interaction with him. Because, you know, if you do something wrong in that process, death may be the result. Um, God could strike you down. You have the passages in, in Exodus about don't touch the mountain that God's revealing himself mm-hmm. on. Um And, uh, you know, so you've got Uzzah, who's trying to stabilize the Ark of the Covenant, which is movable sacred space in a way. It's a communication point tool, interaction point with God. And so um, he reaches out, it's it's about to fall off the cart. He reaches out, tries to touch it, and God says, yeah, you're done. 
Uza, you're the yep. mosquito. You just you just found the mosquito zapper. Um, and so God is scary. Communicating with God is scary, mm-hmm. and it's not easy. Um, and so the question, I guess, that would come from that would be, well, why isn't he that way now? Well, he is. He hasn't changed. He's the same God he has always been. Yet, Jesus has paid that price, that death price once for all. The curtain has torn. And so we don't have to be scared. We don't have to be scared. But we take for granted that we don't have to be scared. We're so used to that that we don't realize what a huge blessing it is that we can communicate with him without fear. Um, and so the average Israelite didn't have that assumption. Um, you know, you've got the Israelites reacting to God's revelation and going back to Exodus and Mount Sinai. And they're like, yeah, he's, he's, he seems upset. He seems angry a lot. Yeah. Moses, why don't you talk to him? And then you tell us, we don't want to have to hang out with this guy because it seems like that might be bad for our health in kind of a permanent <laughs> way. And so that's their kind of perspective. And I love the statement there in Exodus twenty twenty that he says, Moses, hey, don't be afraid. God doesn't want you to be afraid of communicating with him. Hmm. All this stuff that has caused you to be afraid, he wants you to be afraid so you don't sin. Hmm. Yeah but he doesn't want to be you afraid of communicating with him. And so you've got right there in one verse, don't be afraid, be afraid of not sinning. And you have in there encapsulated this relationship of father and children. Mm. The father wants the children to communicate with him, but their natural tendency is to break the rules and he's going to, he has to punish them when they break the rules. And so um, you've got this kind of, as with every parent and child, you've got this kind of rough issue in the communication. There's an authority there that creates a certain amount of distance that ultimately is not, you know, the end game, what God wants. And so then when you fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus says, I don't, I call you brothers. It's like, whoa, okay. Mm that's we've changed you know the the game plan here a little bit because of what jesus is doing and again we don't get that we're like oh cool brothers hey bro you know and stuff and we we just minimize how much of a huge bump up that is because of what jesus is going to do and we don't know the backstory leading up to that in terms of just how difficult communication with god was and what that relationship kind of looked like for the average israelite so that was a lot of words. I hope that answered your question. So, yeah, absolutely. Hey, and uh, Dr. Harrison, could I jump in here and, uh, and kind of frame this a little bit, uh, in your book, you, you start by talking about the sacred space of the garden of Eden, mm-hmm. uh, that it's an mm-hmm. access point to God where you have, uh, you know, a kind of unparalleled access that then is lost but something I, I found particularly insightful that you wrote, and I'm, I'm reading here on page seven of your book, where you talk about the Tower of Babel, um, mm-hmm. where you say they're desiring the ter- Tower of Babel, and here I'm quoting you, to have access to God that was not dependent on God's self-revelation meant reaching equality with him. 
humanity would not be bound by God's will if they could reach him at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so one of the themes that I noticed throughout your book was this idea that God, uh, because he is sovereign and because of human sin, kind of talking about the, the parallel of a, a parent with a child that's not uh, obeying and therefore the parent has to make additional rules, that the sacred space was something that God had to initiate and maintain rather than something that could be initiated on the part of humans. Uh, right. So maybe could you talk to us a little bit more about that? And then how also uh, that remains true in the New Testament. God is the one who sets the terms of right. our communication with him, even though access now is fundamentally different. Maybe you could talk right. about that. Sure. I'd be glad to. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just we're dealing with concepts here that are, that are whole biblical theology concepts. And so hmm. um, talking about them in such a way that makes them accessible is, and yet boils them down without reducing them too much is always is always the challenge for me so i'll do the best i can here um without following too many rabbit trails uh the (laughs) yeah the garden of eden what you have i mean to talk about that first and then the tower of babel and then the new testament um the garden of eden you've got them that kind of unparalleled access that interaction god has set that up from the beginning there's discussion among Christian scholars and theologians about, you know, is there a covenant with Adam and Eve or creation and the idea of covenants? And um, I would argue there is, but often when the people talk about that as a covenant, they talk about it as this covenant of works. I don't think there's really any such thing as a covenant of works personally, um, because it's all established. Every covenant's established by God. Um, he's the prime mover. He's the one that establishes it. So all covenants, all agreements, interaction between God and humans, it's initiated by God. Therefore, it's an act of grace by God. Hmm. And so um, what you have then in the Garden of Eden is, is Adam and Eve set up to have this relationship with God. And in that relationship, um, they have one command. They have one thing that they're really not supposed to do one negative command right a couple positive commands one negative the negative is eating the fruit of the garden or eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil okay lots of speculation on what's going on there but i think most people will agree that what they were grasping at and i like the term grasping (laughs) when they grab for that fruit okay um was equality with god that if we put it in kind of modern terms, going back many years, there was a bumper sticker. It's no longer popular, I don't think, but it was popular for a while. God is my co-pilot. And the temptation is to make God your co-pilot. And that's what the temptation of the fruit was, where God had always set it up. No, he's the pilot. You're along for the ride. You might get to ride shotgun. You might be in the back seat. You don't get to determine even where you get to sit. You just got to be happier in the car. All right. And so, but the temptation is always to make God your co-pilot. And that's really what they're grasping at with that fruit. And so then with the Tower of Babel, they're trying that again. Mm-hmm. They're trying for that equality that puts God on, puts them on a par with God. And they get to help God run things. 
And mm. God says, yeah, no, that's not going to, that's not going to float. All right. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting. It's a, it's a bit speculative, but if you look at the, the story with the Tower of Babel, what they build, what they use, they use a kind of an unusual bonding agent for the stones. Uh, it's bitumen or tar. Um, instead of just more typical mason, they use something that's got a water-resistant quality. It's the same stuff that's used with paste Noah's, um, or not Noah, mm -hmm. Moses's um, little raft that his mom built um, for him uh, to make it watertight. And so, well, just a couple chapters before you've had the flood. All right. <laughs> so there's an element, I think, there, you know, and this is somewhat speculative, but there is an element there, I think, of resistance to God in building the tower. They're not just, yeah. their, their interest in communicating with God, there is not just, hey, we want to have fellowship with God. Mm -hmm. It's, hey, we want to have equality with God. Mm -hmm. All right. And so then when we fast forward, well, let me talk first about sacred space in the sense that they're trying to mandate or create sacred space for themselves. Okay. Mm. That God would have to respond to. Um, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God always has to establish the space. God comes and says, I'm accessible. Sometimes that's temporary. Sometimes that's a movable thing, sort of like an early cell phone with the tabernacle. Um, it's an early cell phone, but it's one of those really early ones that has the battery that's, you know, this big and, and you know, you have to, you have a backache from carrying your cell phone around and you have to pull up the antenna mm -hmm. three feet high and yeah. that a, sort of thing. Or a so, car phone, a back yeah, car phone. phone, early car oh, phone. Oh, the old car phones. You know? <laughs> and so one of those things, you get to the New Testament, God's still calling the shots and there's still this element of, yes, he's accessible, but you are not, he's not your co-pilot still, okay? Mm -hmm. um, he's still driving the ship, and you've got to, if you love me, obey my commandments, John 14, 15. Mm -hmm. And what we have is Jesus kind of in Philippians 2 overturning in his, his system there. He's overturning what Adam did because mm -hmm. Jesus comes along and he's got this equivalency with God. He's the one that is God incarnate, so he actually has equivalency with God. He is God, the mystery that is the Trinity. Um, yet he lowers himself, becoming subservient, all right? Um, obedient, subservient, taking on the form of a man. And so he actually, unlike Adam, unlike the Tower of Babel, um, instead of grasping at equality of God, he already had equality of God, he lowers himself therefore enacting the proper response, the proper relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, and so then what we have is through that, we're able to have that unlimited communication with God. But it's still very much this idea of, you know, God is God and we are human beings. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. um, so there's the element of being brought up to the level of brother, but there's also the element of being a disciple. Um, and following those commands. And you have ultimately then sacred space, this idea of sacred space and communication with God, expanding from Garden of Eden to limited access to the land of, of Canaan slash Israel becoming um, this second take on the Garden of Eden, really. That's the function of the land of Israel. 
is a limited restoration of what was lost in that communication with God. You've got a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, things are provided for them so they can focus on their relationship with God. That's lost yet again. There's exile. You have then um, Jesus coming along and ultimately removing those barriers so that land becomes less important. Um, and then when you get to the book of Revelation, ultimately, you have everything boiled down to one of two spots. You've got the outer darkness, separation from God, and the place where God is there. And so you have this restoration. And so everybody that is God's will have that access um, in, a, in a more physical way than we have even now. Um, but we have that access um, spiritually at this point that uh, um, was lost in the Garden of Eden. And yet God was always marching towards that restoration through the process. So, again, I'm a professor, so I give long answers. I apologize. <laughs> um and no, no way. I mean, much, that's way too much to have normal conversations and friends. So, um, <laughs> no, we love it. I mean, that, that was really excellent. Put uh, very well put for us because, um, your final chapter and Tim, I think you had a quote that you wanted to read again as well from that one. Um, but your final chapter, you it's entitled from space to person, mm -hmm. which you just kind of laid out for us. This is part of the beauty of understanding the old Testament is we better appreciate the significance of right Christ saying, now I call you brothers, the value of the Holy spirit that I have access and guaranteed not, you know, is God actually receiving my prayers, but I know that he's receiving my prayers as we transition mm -hmm. from these sacred spaces, these limited connections with God to the new Testament. And, uh, both Tim and I found this, 